0: What a fitting song to uh, end our series through Romans 8, how much we need God, we need our Lord Jesus Christ as our one defense. And as we get into the study this morning, we'll see how uh, apt that song is to our discussion this morning, Uh, obvious that the Holy Spirit was guiding uh, all of us as we get into this. Uh, Before I get into the study this morning, I wanted to make... uh, or say a few things about the one announcement in there regarding the Adult Bible Fellowship that is coming up starting in two weeks, entitled Understanding LGBT, subtitled Living Grace, Believing Truth. I will be leading that, uh, again, starting in two weeks at 9 o'clock downstairs. I just wanted to give you a little background to that because uh, people are expressing some anxiety over raising these issues and talking about them Uh, I started on a journey maybe about five or six years ago or so uh, because of the cultural climate that we live in to say, I want to understand this issue more clearly. And I wanted to understand from two perspectives. One is I wanted to understand how a person who was in the LGBT lifestyle was feeling, how they were thinking, what was important to them, what was driving them. Uh, because I've not personally experienced that. I wanted to understand as best I could. So my first book was actually by a person who uh, styles himself as a gay Christian, how to be gay and Christian in America, to see what he was thinking and how he could reconcile uh, what we believe is biblical truth with with his lifestyle. The second thing I wanted to understand was what the Bible actually says, to be free from our stereotypes and our knee-jerk reactions. What does the Bible really say about these things, and how can we bring these two understandings together? Uh, In the discussions in our culture and the discussions in our church, there is a lot of heat, there's a lot of darkness, but not a lot of light, not a lot of grace, not a lot of truth. And so, my desire is to bring grace and truth to this discussion as we uh, meet together to do that. So, all are invited uh, to come and join this discussion. We'll be downstairs uh, doing that. It'll be a discussional format where we're going to explore these issues. If you are someone who is uh, in this lifestyle, struggling with these issues, you're welcome to come. If you've been touched by this or any of us, this is really for everybody because we're all touched by it in some way. Uh, one of my goals for the study is actually that all of us would be made a little uncomfortable in the sense that I'd like to challenge all of our thinking because there, I'm sure there are things that we all need to change in our understanding of these issues and I'd like us to come together to explore those things. So I have three commitments. One is I'm going to be systematic. That is, we're going to take our time and go through this and explore this. Secondly, it's going to be a place that is safe That is, that we can voice our concerns, our misunderstandings, our beliefs, our questions in an environment that is safe to do so. And I want it to be serene, that is, quiet and peaceful. As Christians, we should be able to engage in difficult discussions in a non-divisive way in a way of love and grace and truth. And so that's our goal through all of this. So you are invited to uh, come to that. If you have any questions, uh, please feel free. You can come talk to me. I'd be happy to talk to you more about that. This is a bit of a bittersweet moment coming to the end of our study through Romans 8. It's been a great journey for me. I trust that it has been for you, and I'm looking forward to what we have to hear from the Lord this morning. Uh, last week, uh, as your note sheet shows, we talked about Romans eight seventeen and others where Paul says, provided we suffer with Him, we talked about, it wasn't last week, two weeks ago, that God is committed to making us like Jesus, and He uses our suffering as a tool to reach that goal. So what I'd like to do now is I'd like to introduce uh, as a little bit of a a teaser here what we're going to talk about next. And uh, I'm going to play an audio clip here and see who can guess what this audio clip is from. This is going to test what era you're really from or if you're a history buff. Uh, But here we go. Raise your hand if you know. Everybody's over the age of, uh... no? Perry Mason, Uh, uh, show ran for uh, about 10 years, 1950s, 1960s, one of the most popular legal themed dramas uh, ever, actually, Uh, did quite well. And uh, Perry Mason was the defender of those who had been falsely accused, and though there were some narrow escapes, he always won his cases. Uh, but he defended those who were uh, falsely accused. Today's lesson actually deals, and I was amazed to get into this as I was studying this, it actually deals with this courtroom drama. I mean, here you see the, you know, the prosecutor standing behind a defense attorney. And how many have ever been in a courtroom? For whatever reason, you don't have to tell us why you were there. <laughs> uh, all right, so many of us have been there, um, So we know what it's a very tense place, right? Even if you're there as an observer, it's a very tense place to be. A lot of drama, a lot going on. It's a very sobering uh, kind of place to be. Uh, Today, we're going to look at uh, a similar courtroom drama in the Scriptures as we look at how Paul lays out this last section of Romans chapter 8. So, before we go any further, what I'd like to do is just pause and ask the Lord's blessing on our journey through uh, Romans 8, and uh, let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. We are grateful for what we've experienced so far this morning, and the reminder that uh, the one thing that remains in our lives is your love and your grace and your presence with us, that we freely acknowledge that we need you, that you are indeed our one defense, our only defense. And you are our righteousness. And so I pray that as we go into our study this morning, that you would open our hearts and our eyes to see the things that we need to see, that we can uh, more wisely live in this world, that we can know you better, that we can draw closer to you in confidence, and that we can be effective in this world. I pray that as we get into this, that indeed we would see that these words are not the words of men, but what they really are, the words of God that does its work in us who believe. And I pray that we would see that and the power of Your Spirit would work in our midst. We want to be where You are, but we know that we're not there yet. And for now, we need Your grace to know how to live wisely in this world, and we ask that You would do so. So, Father, we ask that what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, and what we are not make us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to be looking at Romans 8, 31 to 39. I invite you to turn in your Bibles. You need to be checking on me to make sure I'm not going to slip anything by you. As I read this, I'm going to be reading from the NIV version, New International Version, which is in the pew. I'll be studying from the, or preaching from the ESV, the English Standard Version. So Romans 8, verses 31 to 39. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also, along with Him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is He that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Paul starts this section off with a question, what then shall we say to these things? And then he goes through and uh, proceeds to ask four questions that begin with who to help us to understand, to fill out this question he's asking, uh, what then shall we say to these things? I refer your attention to your note sheet. The title of this message is When, God Love, when God's Love Fails. I hope many of you are trying to figure out when that happens. Uh, I know uh, Terry Hosanne was very upset to be away this week because uh, she knew the title was coming and she didn't know the answer, and I wouldn't tell her. And... Uh, <laughs> So she has to wait till she gets back to find out. But we're going to play a little Where's Waldo with this passage. Again, you're going to date yourself, right? How many know what that is? Uh, Right? That was a game where there's a figure hidden in a complicated picture and you had to try to find him in each of those pictures. Well, as we're going through this study, if you can do so and still pay attention, uh, let's see if we can find out where God's love fails as we go through this passage uh, to see what the answer to that question is because there's a space at the bottom of your sheet to be able to fill that in when we're done. So Paul asks a series of questions, but he asks first this question, what then shall we say to these things? Well, what things is he talking about? Well, he's talking about things like verse 1, there is no condemnation, verse 3 that Jesus came to us, God's son came to us for our sins, for us and for our sins to die and to be raised from the dead. The spirit of God came In verse 9, living in us to change us. Verse 16, to reassure us that we are God's children. Verse 26, to pray for us. Verse 15, we see that we have been adopted as God's son. Verse 17, that God uses our suffering to shape us to be conformed to the image of Christ. Verses 24 and 25, we have the hope of heaven because of what Jesus has done for us. In verse 29, that we are being continually conformed to Jesus' image. And in verses 28 to 30, God is doing all that is necessary from start to finish to be sure the process is completed. Wow. And Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? And so he starts with these four other questions in verse 31, giving us the logical conclusion to all that God has done for us. And so he says in verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, Who can be against us? Who can be our adversary? Who can be our enemy? That's what that word means, who can be against us? And it's an interesting question because there are lots of adversaries, are there not? Uh, Even Satan himself, the word Satan means adversary. That's one of the names for the devil. Satan means adversary. He's our enemy. He accuses us. He is opposed to us. He's opposed to God. He's opposed to anything or anyone that would desire to know God. Uh, Other people are our enemies. There are people who are out to get us, right? Just because I'm paranoid doesn't mean people aren't out to get me, right? Uh, There are people that are out to get us. Oh, hi, by the way. Welcome. Welcome. Wade and Christina are with us with their new little one. Uh, There are people out to get us. There are circumstances, right? Have you ever said, life is against me, the tree falls in the car, and bad things happen, and life seems to be out to get us? Uh, And have you ever said, you know, I'm my own worst enemy? I am my own worst enemy. How many times do we make foolish decisions, do stupid things, uh, think we're doing something right, and it turns out to be wrong, and we become our own worst enemy. There are legitimate adversaries out there, and what is God's answer to that? Now, nah, don't worry about them. They're okay. They're not going to last long. No, he doesn't say that. He says that there are people who are against us, but what is the answer? God is for us. There are things that are against us. There are many enemies that are against us, but God is for us, as evidenced by giving his son up for us. He who did not spare his own son, verse 32, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We don't have to worry about our enemies. We don't have to worry about those things and circumstances and people that are legitimately against us because God is for us. God is for us. That should be the end of the argument, right? Because God is for us, no one can ultimately win against us. No one. There is no legitimate enemy that can ultimately win against us. What follows is just an expansion of that thought. Uh, and so that's what we're going to look at the second question here. So, who can be against us? No one. All right? All right no one. Now, Paul asks the second question in verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who shall bring any accusation against God's elect, against God's chosen people? That's those of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, those of us who are His children by grace. Who can bring any charge? Interestingly enough, the first person I thought of was the devil. You know what the word devil means? It means accuser. It means accuser. So he is Satan. He's our enemy. He's our adversary. But he's also the devil. He's our accuser. He accuses us of wrong things. He accuses us of having done wrong. God's law accuses us. Jesus said that in John 5. He says Moses accuses you. Why? Because God's law tells us how to live. And we look at it and we realize that we haven't lived that way. We are guilty of having violated God's holy standard. And back to what we had talked about before, who else accuses us? Or Our own conscience accuses us. Paul says in Romans 2, our consciences accuse us because we know that we have done wrong. We know that we are not living right, that we justly accuse ourselves. We are just, justly accused of having done wrong. We have legitimate accusers. We are not blameless. But what is the answer to the question of who shall bring any accusation or who shall bring any charge against God's elect? No one. Why? Because, it says, it is God who justifies. It is God who justifies. There are legitimate accusations against us. We have violated God's righteousness, violated God's standard, not lived up to be the people He wants us to be. So, when we are accused, we are justly accused, but yet, Paul says, well, who can really accuse us? No one, because why? God has justified us. God has declared us to be right, He has declared us to be not guilty. And this is not just a pardon kind of thing where, okay, I'm just gonna, yeah, you did the wrong thing, but you know, we're gonna pretend it didn't happen and you can move on. No, this is something that Jesus took care of for us that he took the accusations on himself that were deserving to us, that were coming to us, and he took care of it. Because of Jesus, God justifies us. He declares us to be not guilty. He declares us to be in the right. So there is no one who can come and bring a legitimate accusation, not because they're not true, but because they've already been taken care of. So who can be against us? No one, because God is for us. Who can bring any charge against us? No one, because God has justified us. Well, let's look at the next one. In verse 33, 34, who is to condemn? Who is to condemn us? Now, you can start seeing why I I saw this as a legal thing, right? So there are adversaries who are bringing accusations, which goes through the process of trial, and now we are condemned. Who shall condemn us? That means to sentence you, to declare guilty and deserving punishment. That's what the word condemn here means, to sentence, to declare guilty and deserve punishment. So, the accusers have come, they have made accusations, those accusations have been found to be true, and we've been declared guilty and deserving of punishment. So, who can condemn us? Well, who condemns us, first of all? Well, we can be condemned by others, right? Others can come and say, you know, you're, you're guilty, you're worthless, you're sinning, you're a hypocrite, however they want to condemn us. Uh, we uh, condemn ourselves, right? I do that all the time, right? I do all the time. Oh, you jerk! What were you thinking? I live in regret. I live in the past. Why did I do that? Uh, I'm constantly condemning myself, and am I the only one that lives there? <laughs> now, there's other people. Yeah, yeah, there's other people who live there too, right? We're our best condemners. Uh, There are condemners who can legitimately declare us guilty and deserving of punishment. If somebody said, yes, you did this and you are guilty, I'd have to say, yes, you're absolutely right. I am guilty and I did do that. Uh, Or yes, I am guilty. I did think that. But what is the answer? And Paul goes into some more detail. He says, who is to condemn? Well, Christ Jesus is the one who died. Yes, I am guilty. I am deserving of punishment. Jesus took my punishment. Jesus died on the cross to take my punishment. So even though someone can come to me and rightly condemn me, they can no longer condemn me because the punishment has been paid. Jesus paid the penalty. More than that, who was raised. So not only did he die for my sin, he came back from the dead. He conquered death. He conquered my greatest enemy. He conquered your greatest enemy. He died for your sin. He rose from the dead. And more than that, he's now at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. So, there is no one who can declare us guilty, because, not because we're not guilty, but because Jesus took our guilt. He took our punishment. He took our shame upon himself when he died on the cross. And he was raised from the dead, conquering that, defeating that. And now he's at the right hand of God, interceding for us. He's, he's a mediator between us and God. And what's interesting, I refer you back to verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves Nope, I'm sorry. That's not the one I wanted. Verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So we have the Spirit diving into the depths of our hearts because we don't know what to pray for, and He's interceding for us. He's taking those prayers and those groanings to God. In the meantime, Jesus is standing at the right hand of God the Father, and He's interceding for us on our behalf and saying, Yes, They're guilty, but they're not guilty anymore because I've taken their punishment. I died, I rose, and I'm here standing on their behalf. So God's got the intercession for us, the mediator covered for us between us and God because the Spirit is within us interceding and Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding. Jesus paid the penalty. Jesus conquered death. Jesus is interceding for us. So who can condemn us? No one. There's no one who can rightfully condemn us. There are things that we could be condemned of, but nothing will ultimately stand against us because Jesus has paid the price. Jesus has done it all. Paul then asks the next question in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ, from the love of God? Who shall separate us from the love of God? Who shall put us apart? Who shall remove from? And keeping with the theme of The the legal drama in the courtroom, I looked up uh, uh, the purpose of corrections, the purpose of the uh, prison system, regardless of what you think about that. But the the definition is the purpose of corrections is to separate criminals from the society in which they would operate. The purpose of correction is to separate criminals from the society in which they would operate. That's a definition from a website called the Legal Beagle. Um, So that's a definition of corrections that's where this word separation comes from so we have accusers i'm sorry we have enemies who bring accusations by which we are condemned with the desire to separate us from life and from god and paul then asked the question well then who shall separate us from the love of god shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword he's giving a list of things that could separate us from this life and things that could separate us from god and as a matter of fact, in verse 36, he quotes Psalm 44:22. He says, it's written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He's saying this is not some uh, irrational fear that these things can separate us from God. These things are happening. And you look and say, well, we're not, you know, here we are in Grace Chapel, Havertown, 2018. We're not being killed. We're not being slaughtered for our faith. Brothers and sisters, we are part of a larger family, of the larger family of God around the world. And I don't know the statistics, but I imagine that while we are here speaking, that brothers and sisters are being put to death even now for believing in Jesus. And if they're not being put to death, they're being mistreated in their societies and in their homes. This is not uh, made up suffering or some kind of irrational fear is, is what Paul is saying here. This is something that is actually happening in the world around us, and even for us, you can say, "Well, that's not us." Well, if you look around, the culture's attitudes we're those who believe in Jesus Christ—how are we being treated? We're being marginalized. We're being minimized. We're being neutralized. The gospel and God's people are being set aside and felt to be the enemies of people, and the enemies of the world, and the enemies of the state instead of what we really are, are those who desire prospering of God's people and the flourishing of the people in this world. Uh, People would desire to separate us from society and separate us from the things of this world. Paul is talking about real suffering by real people in this real world, the desire to separate us from them, right? The purpose of correction is to separate criminals from the society in which they would operate. Society desires to separate us from them because we're nothing but troublemakers and have uh, wrong attitudes towards people. And Paul says these things are really true, really happening. So what is the answer? He says in verse 37, no. That's how he starts. No, no. There is no one who can separate us from the love of God. He says we are more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That word more than conquerors, I don't usually do this, bringing up uh, Greek words. I'm not a Greek scholar. I don't know Greek. I, don't, I never learned the biblical languages. So don't mistake me for somebody I'm not. But this, this more than conquerors that is one, uh, three words in English is actually one word in Greek. It's "hooper nikomen, Hooper nikomen. And again, my apologies to those who know how to, this really is pronounced. It's actually a compound word, which is two words, hyper or hooper, and Nicoman. Nicoman means conqueror, and hooper means hyper, so it's hyper-conqueror. We are hyper-conquerors, and you just think about that. We think of somebody being active. What do we say? Well, they're busy. They're going all over the place. Well, if they're hyperactive, what is that, Right? That is just activity that is over and above and beyond. What is a conqueror? A conqueror is someone who has won the battle. They have defeated the enemy. They have subdued their enemies. What is a hyper-conqueror? A hyper-conqueror is somebody who has completely over, above and beyond and overwhelmingly vanquished their enemy. They didn't just squeak by here. This is an overwhelming victory. Because of God's love for us in Christ Jesus, we are hyper-conquerors. We are hyper conquerors. And then Paul goes on to say, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, right? Death itself cannot separate you from God's love. If you are a child of God in Jesus Christ, what the worst that death can do is send you face to face with Jesus, with him forever and eternity. That's the worst it can do. It may separate you from earthly society, but all it does is usher you into heaven. Neither death nor life, there's nothing in this life that can separate us, nor angels, these high heavenly beings, nor rulers, which refers usually to these demonic evil forces, evil angels, uh, demonic forces in the world. Angels or rulers can't do it. Things present. There's nothing in this present time that can separate you from God's love. There's nothing that can happen to you. There's no person in existence now. There's no person alive. There's nothing that can happen to you now. Or, he says, in the future nor things to come. There's nothing that can happen now or in the future that can separate you from God's love. Nor powers. So, that's an overarching term referring to anybody in power, anything that has power. It can be heavenly powers. We already talked about angels and rulers. It can be earthly powers, kings and princes. It can be any power that would come against you. Uh, Paul says, none of those powers can separate you from the love of God. Nor height, there's nothing big enough. There's no obstacle high enough. Nor depth, there's nothing, no valley so low that... Will separate you from God's love. And just in case he missed something, what does he say? Nor anything else in all creation. He said, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul has eliminated everything in the created order. He said there is nothing that you can see, hear, taste, touch in this created order that can separate you from God's love for you in Christ Jesus. So that leaves only one thing left, right? The creator. So the creator could be against us, but what have we already seen? God is for us. God is for us. There is no one in this entire universe who can be against us because God is powerful enough to make sure that none of these things are going to come against us and he himself is for us. And how do we know that he's for us? That's what Paul already said in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how we not also with him graciously give us all things. Wow. Well, let's spend a few moments just thinking this through a little bit. This courtroom drama that we've just talked about, that there are enemies, accusers, that will lead to our condemnation and to our separation from society, is one which every one of us faces spiritually before God. It's a very real and very serious courtroom. God is the judge. God is the judge. And there are enemies, and there are accusers, and there are condemners, And there are those who would separate us from this life and from God. And so this is a very serious thing that we need to think about, which is why I think Paul spends so much time with it here. So I'd like to address two different groups of people. I'd like to address those who we would call unbelievers, that is, those who have not put their faith in Jesus Christ, those who have not come to believe that they are a child of God through faith. This idea of Jesus dying for your sins and rising from the dead and being alive today Uh, is something that's foreign to you. I'm uh, appealing to you right now to take this to heart. So your sin is against you. Your sin accuses you. Your sin has condemned you already as being guilty and deserving of punishment. Your guilt, your sin has already separated you from God. So this courtroom drama has already played out and this separation from God will continue on into eternity unless you do something different now. This separation from God will continue on into eternity unless you do something different now. And the thing you need to understand is that you cannot successfully stand in this courtroom on your own. You cannot stand in your own defense before the God of the universe because you will lose that case. Even Perry Mason could not win that case because your sins accuse you. That's the bad news, but the good news is that this is a God's invitation to you to believe in Him that He loves you so much that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that He was raised from the dead in order that you may become a child of God, forever united to Him and His undying love for you. That's what this is. This is an invitation to you to become God's child through faith in Jesus Christ. I'd be happy to talk to you if you have questions about that later. There'll be people over here to talk with you or pray for you later if you're interested or somebody near you would be interested in that. Feel free to talk to them. But let me direct my attention now to believers. What do we already know? If God has adopted you as His child because of your faith that Jesus paid the penalty for your sins and then rose from the dead conquering your greatest enemy... But this week, as we live life, right, we're going to have those who will accuse you. You will have those who will condemn you. You will have those who will try to separate you from God's love. You will have those who will try to make you doubt God's love. Whether it's outside people or circumstances or your own inner workings, your own inner musings, there are things that will try to separate you from God's love. There will be circumstances. Things will break. Accidents will happen. Forces of nature will come against you. There may be people and family, friends, co workers, your boss, total strangers. Laurel and I were out riding our bike one time, and some car went by and called us morons. I mean, what the I, I don't know what I ever did to you. Total stranger. Uh, con, had condemned me already, and I didn't even know what I did wrong. And as we talked about, we ourselves are our own worst enemies, right? We accuse ourselves. We live in regret. We live in guilt. We we do sin. We do do things that are wrong. We do have moral failures. So, these things are going to come against us to accuse us and condemn us. We can doubt. We can believe lies that we are guilty, that God's love has failed us. What is Paul saying here? We need to remember that the profound truth of the gospel is that the overwhelming love of your all-powerful God will never fail you. It will never fail you. The profound truth of the gospel is that the overwhelming love of your all-powerful God will never fail you. Nothing of these things can ultimately succeed against you. They may succeed for a time. People may put you to death. People may make you suffer. People may make life difficult for you, but they cannot ultimately succeed because they are vanquished enemies. We are hyper conquerors over these things, not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is and what He has done for us, regardless of what you feel guilt or regret over at any particular time, regardless of what is happening in your life at any particular time, regardless of what others may tell you at any particular time, and regardless of how you may have actually failed God and others at any particular time. As a person, as a husband, wife, as a parent, as an employer, as a student, God's love and forgiveness is there, constant. It will never fail. It will never go away. There is nothing that can separate you from that. Because God is for you. Nothing and no one will ever separate you from this, His love for you in Jesus. Right? I mean, I don't live there. I don't know if you live there, but I don't live there. I want to live there. They said, I live in regret. I live in fear. I live in doubt. I live in wondering. I want to live here that knowing that because God is for me, nothing and no one will ever separate me from his love. I believe that up here. But when it comes down to, if you watch how I live sometimes, I live in those same things that you live in. Wondering, how could God possibly love me? Things are going so badly or I've done so badly. How could God possibly love me? Because God is for us and He is for us, nothing can ultimately stand against us. No accusations will stick. No condemnations are just. So, what can we say about Romans 8 as a whole as we come to close up our series? Well, Romans 8 has told us that for those of us who believe in Jesus Christ… We are no longer condemned. In verse 1, that's where we started. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We've also seen now at the end of the chapter that you are more than conquerors. We are no longer condemned. And it's not just a matter of no longer condemned. We've gone from no longer condemned to being more than conquerors. Being no longer condemned, saying, fine, go your way and, you know, just live your life. No, we are more than conquerors. We have moved from condemned to conqueror, Paul is saying, and that's the point of Romans 8. All right, so I promised to come back to this slide, right? When God's love fails, we need to fill in that little block at the bottom of uh, your note sheet where it says when God's love fails, because some of you like to fill in everything that's, that's up there, so we need to do that. So, there it is, when God's love fails. Now, I don't usually, I'm not usually so bold as this because, right, you never say never and you always avoid saying always because there's always something we can have forgotten about, right? I can tell you, I'm going to show you right now the exhaustive, the complete exhaustive list of those number of times where God's love fails you. And I can guarantee you that nothing is going to be left off this list. There it is. right do you believe that I do I just pray that I can learn to live it a little bit better and pray that you can too let's close in prayer father we thank you for this journey that you've given us through Romans 8 we thank you for the wisdom of your servant Paul speaking by the power and the authority of the Holy Spirit, gave us these words to reassure us about Your love for us, that we do have enemies. We do have those who could rightly accuse us of wrongdoing. We rightly stand guilty before You as judge and worthy of condemnation, worthy of punishment, worthy of separation from You and from society. And yet, we know that because of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross on our behalf, his resurrection from the dead, conquering death, and he is at your right hand now interceding for us. We know that because of him, you have moved us from those who are condemned to those who are more than conquerors. God, I pray that you would let this sink into our hearts that as we reflect even on this last slide of when God's love fails, that we could be reassured that your love for us will never, ever fail. That's a reckless love that reveals that you have been so good to us, you have been so kind, you have paid it all on our behalf so that we are no longer condemned but are conquerors. And so, Lord, I trust that you will bring this to a reality in each of our lives as we would understand more and more what that means. And we each are coming from different places. We all have different pains and sorrows and journeys, but your grace meets them all. Your Spirit is in us, your Son is at your right hand, and you are for us. Therefore, no one can be against us. May we learn to live more deeply into that reality. In Jesus' name, amen.